Welcome to Farmerama. In the Northern Hemisphere, we're feeling grateful for the increasing light and glimpses of spring in the air and ground. This month, we begin hearing from a great Indian scholar and farming advocate as she shares her thoughts on the farming protests happening in India right now. We explore death and life and how one farmer is embracing the characters of individual sheep and making wool a higher-end fibre once again. And we hear some great tips and tricks on biofarming from an international agroecologist. Over the last few months, the largest protest in human history has been taking place in India. Tens of thousands of farmers marched to the capital to protest the new farm laws, and 250 million people around the country participated in a 24-hour general strike in solidarity. With almost 50% of the Indian population working in farming, the majority of them farming at small scales, India has retained small-scale farming communities. A few weeks ago, I helped moderate a discussion about seeding liberation on the land, hosted by Chelsea Green and Advaya. Vandana Shiva joined me on the panel. She's an Indian scholar who set up the Navdanya farm that works with hundreds of thousands of farmers in India. I took the opportunity to ask her for an on-the-ground account of what the farmer protests in India were all about. 1984, there were similar protests in Punjab. And, uh, and they were, you know, a deflection was taken. Uh, it became a religious narrative. The Golden Temple was invaded. And the farmer's issue was forgotten. The same, the people today are the children of the farmers who protested then. 91, when the World Bank and the, you know, the early drafts of the GATT and WTO started, we had huge movements. I went to every farmer union of this country and explained patenting of seed, explained trade in agriculture, explained sanitary and phytosanitary measures. And we had rallies of 500,000, 200,000, saying food is too important to be left to trade and profiteering. And that's where the language of seed sovereignty and food sovereignty started to grow. I brought farmers from across the world, including the Koreans. You might remember there was a Korean farmer who committed suicide in the WTO meetings in Kanpur to say, I am committing suicide to let the world know that there's a crisis of farmers, that farmers are facing a crisis. And that's exactly what they're fighting about now. They're, they, they're basically saying, we'll stick here till you shoot us dead. Because if you pass these laws of total deregulation, we're going to be dead anyway. So what happened yesterday was Republic Day of India and, um, and a totally orchestrated invasion of the Red Fort was done. The parade was peaceful. The farmers' protest over two months has been totally peaceful. And this to me took me back to 84, where exactly in the same way, a deflection took place, a criminalization of farmers took place. 30,000 people had died in 84, in that period in Punjab. And right now, it, you know, for a very peaceful moment, movement to continue to be able to tell its story in authenticity, where now the loaded media is deflecting it, that's the, the challenge. And I, I think for all of us, that's the challenge. That here is this amazing work being done all over, in, you know, three of us from three continents, 
and sharing the same vision. And yet, look at them I mean, look at BBC and what they talk about in terms of the future of agriculture. Yeah. I mean, for those who are working on care for the land, harvesting your tomatoes is not a painful task. But all of the thing is we'll get robots to relieve the farmer of hard work. But they've been trying to relieve us of hard work forever till they've made everyone jobless. And I think that narrative of work as drudgery rather than work as liberation is part of the new narrative that we must tell. And you know, it's so much of the fossil fuel story, yeah, that it had to define every bit of autonomous work by people as drudgery and real slave work as progress. And now they're reaching the stage with robotics and artificial intelligence. We don't need people. 99% of you are useless. So our farmers are seeing the past. This, they've lived through 30 years of globalization and neoliberal um, deregulation, and they can see what the future will be. They know they won't have a place and they don't want to be disposable because they're proud farmers. They take pride in their work. Yeah, and you know, I, I think nobody should see the Indian farmers protest as Indian for two reasons. First, the every fourth farmer of the world is an Indian because we have fought to stay small farmers. We have fought against the mythology of large farms are productive. We've defended the smallness. We've celebrated smallness. And so every fourth farmer is an Indian, but also whether it was the green revolution in 65 or neoliberal agriculture in 91 or Bill Gates and digital agriculture, India or East India company in the beginning, India for some reason has always been where the experiment of greed in a new colonization always comes. I think it's because the land is so generous, people are so hardworking, that and we are a very big economy, just that it's not counted. Um, so the Indian farmers' protests are really global protests, and you know, it's about small farmers. It's a small farmer future the farmers are defending, and it is about continuing the fight against the East India Company that captured Africans to work as slaves on land grab from the indigenous people. That empire of cotton is today the empire of of bad food and all of the struggles are one. And I think our duty is to not allow the story of the Indian farmers protest to be ghettoized and to build it and link it to our stories wherever we are, because it is relevant. You know, you've got such an important extinction rebellion going on. I think the threat of extinction of the small farmer is the foundation of all other extinctions because only the small farmer who has the possibility and potential to care, not just for the land, but all the species that depend on the land. So if all those other movements can wake up to this, and so we cannot allow the extinction of the small farmer, we need the opposite. We need everyone to be a farmer directly or indirectly, you know, and to, to really have more people on the land. You know, we need 50, according to me, we need 50% directly taking care of the land and the rest, supported and supporting the 50 percent rebecca hosking is a regenerative farmer and filmmaker 
who has had a great impact on many people in the farming world through her film, A Farm for the Future. A few years ago, she set up Village Farm with her best friend, Tim Green. Very sadly, that partnership ended suddenly, when Tim was killed in a tractor accident. Rebecca talks to us about why she now cares for a flock of sheep, the Forever Flock, and sells their wool to a local crafts business, Felted Sheepskins, run by Rosie Anderson. Five years ago, I was flying along as a director of a farm called Village Farm Organics, and I was farming that with my best friend, and we were pushing the realms, really, of regenerative farming in the UK. Uh, we were very much trying to base ourselves as part of the ecology on our farm. The challenge we had taken on with Village Farm was taking this very denuded, coastal, arable farm and turning it into a wildlife haven, um, producing beautiful food that was increasing biodiversity every year. And the nuts and bolts of it all and the very sadness of it all, Tim was killed in 2017 in a tractor crash. And the fallout of this was that we lost staff very quickly turned this business that was something that I look forward to every day getting up to do into a deeply sad, very, uh, very emotional job where my heart was broken. Long story short, I could, I got back to my family farm and my family gave me a small part of the farm to, to run and I tried to take back as many animals as I possibly could. And I got the rest of them to as best of homes as I possibly could, because that was really important to me. And I had an awful year. And the one thing that kept me going every day was getting up and seeing these sheep and moving them and caring for them. And they got me through this horrible time. And slowly in 2019, I began to dust myself back off and pick myself up and it was what to do with these sheep because they were characters and I loved them dearly and they'd seen me through this awful time there was no way I could go back into meat and death and killing them to make money so we came up with the idea of the forever flock and we were, that was their payback they got me through this awful time now it's my time that they have a time off from being a commercial animal so we thought well they have to be sheared every year so let's make a story out of them of we're preserving them they're, they're still doing ecological good but I wanted to try and find a way of finding worth from them without killing them actually I used to find myself once I'd moved them I would just sit down with them and it was a really peaceful you know, it was just a peaceful practice to do was sit and watch them graze and happily graze on their fresh pasture We've got grumpy ones and bullies and we've got funny ones and we've got curious, curious, curious guys in there. And we've got happy ones and caring ones and sensitive and shy. And there's ones, uh, there's individuals that work like guards. They're like guard dogs are, uh, in the flock. And we have very matriarchal old characters that are the leaders and the others trust them. And there's the huge amount of contact calls that goes on between the whole flock. They're always communicating. I'd seen it already, obviously, because I've been a shepherd for several years, but I was seeing it in that 
okay, these are individual characters I'm now going to stay with for a very long time. Well, because I think when people say uh, sheep, you know, sheep are sheep and they just see white fluffy sheep. But with, well, one of the things that helps with ours are the Shetland Icelandic crosses. So they're all multicoloured and they're very different looking individuals anyway. But I wanted to, when people were started to buy the wool, I wanted to share the stories of how, what I was seeing in the field with these sheep. So that's how we've started to go about selling our wool now. We call them by the names and uh, we tell the buyers of the wool a little bit about the characters of each of the sheep. I, it was interesting because when we were at Village Farm, we had a local neighbour who was into felting and asked for some of the rugs to be made into felted sheepskins. And so she, she did it there. And this is the great thing with a felted rug is no animal has lost its life. So if someone hasn't seen one of these rugs, essentially when it's thrown down on the floor or on the back of a settee, it looks like a sheepskin. But when you flip it over it's felted on the back. So you have all of the benefit of a, of a sheepskin rug and no animal has lost its life. When we're at shearing time, we write the name of the ewe as we're rolling up the fleece. And then when Rosie comes to make this rug, she emails me to say, okay, we're making, say like Marmite's rug is being made at the moment. So I run out and take a photo of Marmite and then I have to write a little bit about Marmite's personality. And that goes back to Rosie and all of that encompassed goes to the buyer. And so it goes on to the website. So not only do you have the name of the sheep, you have a photo of the sheep. And this is really popular because people are connecting with the animal. And for me, it's lovely when Rosie is saying, actually, they're not just buying it on the colour, they're buying it on the personality. They love the story behind this individual. And on a more sort of, um, a sort of, I suppose, a more... Um, personhood type way with giving agency back to the animal who created this fleece in the first place this isn't just a craftsperson who has made this this is the um, individual sheep behind this as well and so there's this real link buyers now have and some people are framing their their photos of the sheep beside their fleece and it's a I mean it's wonderful I think of completely changing the personality of sheep in the UK and, and people are so proud of it and now the great thing is um they want another sheep um, another fleece from the same sheep because they're there so they want matching ones so we really like I don't know uh whoever it is duckies please please can we have another one we've got one on the back of the chair we've got another chair all setty and we'd love another one to match so this all of this goes on as well this has come from a personal choice of mine but I still holistically plan graze the forever flock they're still doing the same land maintenance that they were doing when we were putting them through into meat sales that bit hasn't changed at all and I actually think I've seen the importance of animals on the land I've seen the the, the health benefits to the local ecology if done correctly and I've seen the health benefits to the soil and the forever flock now they are just a fiber flock their ecological um, stance within our landscape is exactly the same so I still see them as an integral part of the ecology here. This is just a sort of a personal choice within how I'm using these sheep and how they're sort of the 
um, the interface between the general public and the way of making an income from them. The fact is, is obviously, if you do the nuts and bolts and, and you're just very pragmatic about this and hard-nosed, you will get a lot more money from killing an animal than getting the wool from the animal. The usual prices for wool in this country are just horrifically bad. But by having this beautiful fleece and by having the animal alive and the whole story and the narrative of what they're doing to benefit nature, then we're able to get a top price for those fleeces. And I suppose I'm putting this out for someone who's going, well, surely you can't make money doing this. If I took on doing secondary product uh, made manufacturer or created something from that wool, then yes, we would make a nice income from the wool. As it is at the moment, the wool covers the price of looking after the sheep. So they pay for themselves. I wouldn't say I make an income from them because I'm doing secondary incomes. But if I wanted to make an income from them, and that would mean some way of processing the wool into other goods, then yes, you could make an income from doing this. Obviously, I've been through this rather personal, painful journey to get to where I am today. And the, uh, and we're all energy and, and life ending. And do we really end life? You know, when I go, when I pop my clogs one day, I'm going to go into the soil and the worms and the microbes are going to eat me. And there's my energy into them. And then the energy from them is going to go into a plant. My energy will end up in plants. And then the energy in the plants will be ending up into the animals. And then depending where they are on the food chain, if they're small animals, they're going to be predated on, on bigger animals. And eventually those animals are going to die and back they go into the soil. And there is that energy cycle going on the whole time. Our energy never goes. And I suppose what... Um, whether you're vegan or or actually it's not even a vegan type question, it's where you like that energy. And right now, I rather like the energy in those sheep. And then, the, you know, and I like the characters of those sheep and I don't want to end that energy there for me. But other people may want to end that energy and may want to put it into the circle of life a bit quicker than I do. As Rebecca acknowledged, farming is full of life and death. And at the core of agroecological farming is to cultivate a good life and a good death for all beings in this cycle of life. That's something that I think when you farm, you do start to really understand is, <laughs> you face up to is that death is an unavoidable part of this, this life. Um, I think it's something, you know, we're all told and we know but as a farmer, you actually live that recurringly, uh, whether you're farming crops or with animals or anything. It's like these cycles of life are happening all the time and the energy is flowing in many different ways. I guess farmers really have to understand or have the opportunity to work with both life and death. Uh, on a regular basis and I think that's something that people outside the farming community don't really acknowledge fully or understand. It's something I think we could explore further. Nicole Masters is an agroecologist, systems thinker and educator, originally from New Zealand and now living in Montana. 
She's the director of an agroecological consultancy, Integrity Soils, and recently published a brilliant book, definitely recommend it, For the Love of Soil. Nicole's a bounty of knowledge about many different regenerative techniques, and she offers a number of online courses for farmers and coaching for advisors. She gave us the lowdown on biopriming and explained why it can be an important part of a more regenerative approach to farming. There's a process of what we call biopriming, so using different types of products that we can put onto seed to support that plant's um, defense system in a process called ISR, so induced systemic responses. Um, and also in terms of looking at trace elements, of lifting the quality of what you're growing. So if you're seeing things like viruses and aphids and insects attacking, it's really telling you that there's something nutritionally and biologically off with the crop that you're trying to grow. And no one wants to grow a subpar product. So some of these um, bio-priming processes, we can actually add um, biocontrol agents to the seed. So some of these are uh, what they're called entomopathogenic fungi. And I don't know who comes up with these words, but people that like really big words. Um, and basically what they are is a, a fungus that will live inside the plant like an endophyte. And when an insect chews on it and infects that insect and basically turns it into a mummy and then it spreads out spores. It's really, really cool. Um, so there's a number of those that you can use as seed treatments in transition while you're trying to build up your soil health and not resort to some of these really ghastly chemicals. Um, it's something that has happened for centuries, especially if you look at uh, Korean natural farming or some of uh, technologies coming out of India. And what's fascinating is that there's so much research that's been coming out in the last two or three years about the benefits of biopriming. So biopriming means that we're gonna put some kind of biological catalyst or microbial inoculant on seed. So if you think about that little seed, there is a microbiome inside that seed and on the outside of that seed. And the research on that's really very, very new. The reason for that is that the minute that that plant starts to germinate, that microbiology goes out and um, is absorbing different types of nutrients, um, solubilizing different types of nutrients. And then as that plant grows and that process known as rhizophagy, they'll actually absorb that bacteria again, blow open their cell walls and absorb those nutrients. So there's this feeding process. So they say between 30 to 100% of the nutrients that's coming into a seedling actually comes from this biological process. So if you're planting a seed naked or with fungicides and pesticides on it into a fairly hostile environment, you're not gonna get these benefits. And then we have a, a situation where you're gonna to need to apply um, pesticides or fungicides. So these microbes are producing all sorts of compounds. So these compounds are eliciting plant responses in terms of uh, them being able to prime or being able to respond um, by increasing their defense molecules or their enzymes or proteins. So like proteinase, um, which is what the plant uses to defend itself from insects is primed by microbiology. So when we're talking about um, these different types of biopriming agents, we can do things like compost extracts or vermicast. So worm, the worm extracts, putting that directly onto seed as a liquid or um, as something that we can put on as a dried product when we're drilling. And what they contain are all sorts of those um, humic compounds, they got minerals, they got plant growth promotants in them, enzymes, hormones, the quorum signaling um, metabolites. Um, so there's all sorts of things that we can actually use. Uh, so even commercial products like trichoderma, 
lactobacillus, um, aspergillus, so our nitrogen fixes, mycorrhizae. And what's amazing, they just contain such a huge variety of these secondary metabolites, things that plants use for defense and health that we couldn't um, even fathom like being able to add these things as individuals. What's exciting is to see that um, in the literature, the effect that these biopriming agents are having in terms of seed germination, in terms of yield, in terms of the need to be adding all of these other chemical products and instead going, how do I support this plant optimally so that it's healthy, so that I don't need to be putting all of this other um, other junk in, basically. And, and then at the end of the day, we're going to be more profitable. Yay! Probably wondering if that sounds quite complicated. And what I'm finding is oh, probably nearly all of our clients now are doing these things themselves. So you can make your own vermicast very, very simply with any kind of farm waste materials, so manure and straw and wood chips and wood shavings or anything like that and feed that to worms and it creates a highly concentrated biological product that we can put down with the seed. You can also make your own compost. And, and the, the thing here is you can buy these products commercially. You just got to ensure that they really are top quality because you're, you're resting your whole farm on, the, on that this is going to be successful. And if you're buying what we call municipal waste compost, so compost that's come from the cities where maybe they're not thinking um, how do I make a good product for a farmer? What they're thinking is, how do I get rid of waste? Um, those products typically aren't very biologically diverse. They're generally full of bacteria. They're not going to have all this disease, suppress, su disease suppression that you need. So thinking long term, do we need to continue to do biopriming? And what I find is, uh, for my cropping guys anyway, probably. I mean, it's something that's not very expensive. It's very simple to do once you have your systems up and running. Um, you're going into systems where, I mean, hopefully you're not cultivating, but you might be cultivating or you might be spraying with herbicides. So we still have this, um, you know, it's like earning the right to get off the inputs. And until we stop those kind of disturbance mechanisms, you're going to need to be able to help to repair that system. But if you're in a perennial grassland system, then absolutely not. You're not gonna to need to keep this up if you have really good management. So I've been asked why we don't call ourselves consultants. So there's this expectation in agriculture that you're gonna get a consultant and they're gonna tell you what to do. Whereas regenerative agriculture is actually a mindset shift. It's, a, it's learning how to learn again, learning how to observe, learning how to shift, um, a whole worldview really around insects and diseases. And so uh, we find the, the most successful way to really imparting long-term change. We are not gonna require someone to hold your hand because actually you can figure this stuff out for yourself is through coaching. So we work alongside um, farmers and viticulture and horticulture and ranches in terms of wh what do you see? What are your goals? Um, what's gonna be the best fit here? Um, and, and ensuring that we don't have these kind of long-term inputs, you know, how do we get off these inputs? But um, that really happens through knowledge. And I think a lot of modern agriculture has really trained people to stop being creative and stop that kind of um, thinking. So, you know, learning, learning to really think um, diagnostically is, it's a long-term journey. And so it's something that we see um, that actually this is where the coaching needs to come in. And if we look at the massive expansion in regenerative agriculture, the biggest missing is having 
really highly trained um, coaches to help support that transition because that transition period can be really, really scary, especially if you've got a lot of debt um, and someone saying to you, hey, question everything. Uh, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and just go, I'm just going to stick with what I know. And we can't stick with what we know. We don't have the time. We don't have, we don't have the public license, quite frankly, to continue with the use of some of these chemicals that we're doing or the land degradation or what, uh, how much land is actually affecting climate change. So we're seeing a lens shine in on agriculture now that it hasn't done in the past. And the only way we're gonna be able to stand up proud to confront that light shining on us is to be doing these practices regeneratively. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, and Abby Rose. Thank you to Chelsea Green and Edvea for letting us use content from their Food, Farming, and Healing Our World series. You can get tickets to all of the sessions on the Advea website. Our Patreon supporters help make Farmerama possible. We're so grateful to all of you who support us and allow us to keep bringing you these stories every month. Even a small contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. A big thanks to the rest of the team, Katie Revel, Olivia Oldham, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, Dora Taylor, and Hannah Sutherland. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!